prayer. Lord, we give you thanks that in this season of Epiphany, we remember you coming into our world, you brightening our darkness, you redeeming us as your people, and your promise to redeem our entire world. We ask, Lord, that you would anoint my lips and our ears and hearts that we might receive your word as that light. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This um, past Friday, my brother, father, and I went to see the movie 1917, and um, if you are into uh, war movies, I would say it's a, it's a very well-done movie. Um, the camera angles are superb. The story, however, is also intriguing. It's the story of two young men, two British soldiers, Lance Corporal's Schofield and Blake, who are tasked with going from their regiment across no man's land into enemy territory, or what had been enemy territory, to save another regiment, the Devonshire Regiment. And Blake's brother is actually a member of this other regiment, and so there's this German counterattack that's going to happen, and so the clock is ticking. And they go through all sorts of hell to get to the Devonshire Regiment to warn them that they're about to walk into a trap. They're given a message from the commanding officer, from the general. And it's a message of life. Because it's a message of stopping this attack as they go into a trap. And so, as the clock ticks, as they continue on, they are determined to get to the Devonshires. In today's gospel, we see the unfolding of God's plan. Why the church calendar goes directly from the Magi to Christ's baptism um, is because the church calendar often follows the themes rather than the timeline. That's something that we as modern Westerners don't necessarily see very often. We think of history as being time. But the ancients saw it differently. More, it was more important to have themes. And so we go right from the visitation of the Magi here to Christ being an adult and being baptized. And we see, however, the theme of adoration and the presence of an imminent and transcendent God connecting the two events. For, as I prayed, Epiphany is about God revealing himself to the Jew and the Gentile. And there's two reactions that people had to God revealing himself. Those two reactions, I would say, are still the two reactions that people have to God revealing himself. Either acceptance or rejection. At least if the message is carried faithfully. People will either accept or reject God. There's not much middle ground. 
So here we are at the baptism of our Lord, and there's three things that I want you to see with me in the text today. Number one, that God's plan is to have a chosen servant, and that servant is Jesus. Number two, that God's plan has Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Number three, that God's plan calls his redeemed people, people found in Jesus, you and I, as well as those of the ancients, to be agents of redemption. So open with me, if you would, in your Bibles, or look with me at the leaflet, the scripture leaflet, first at Isaiah chapter 42. The story of Jesus' baptism begins hundreds of years before he's born as we hear God's plan way back in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, we see that God has a plan and the baptism of Christ has been planned. Throughout the latter part of the prophet Isaiah's writing, God speaks through Isaiah about a servant. You may have heard the term the servant songs. There's four of them in Isaiah. And this is the first servant song about Christ. God's chosen. Look with me at Isaiah 42, 1 and 2. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. What I want you to pay attention specifically to are the words chosen, soul delights, and spirit be upon him. Those phrases. Because as we see, those are actually hooks to the baptism of Christ found in Matthew's gospel. So turn with me now to the gospel passage, Matthew 3. And look with me specifically at verses 16 and 17. Here we have the story of Christ being baptized as is recorded by Matthew. And in 16, we read, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's an echo of Isaiah 42, 1 and 2, where God calls his servants, My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, one called by God. So Jesus fulfills this prophecy from the servant song of Isaiah. But what's the significance of his baptism? And baptism in general, there's something going on, I submit, beyond a sign or a symbol. Otherwise, the opening interchange earlier in the gospel here wouldn't happen. Why does John so vehemently demure from baptizing Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? Look with me at their interchange. 
earlier in the gospel passage, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Well, why is John so against Jesus being baptized? If you read earlier in the chapter, you know, because baptism is a sign of repentance for John. John's baptism is all about repentance and forgiveness. And here we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfectly sinless. Does he need to repent? No. Does he need forgiveness? No. Absolutely not. And so you can, or we can kind of sympathize with John the Baptist, who's, you know, been preaching this and doing this, and, and Jesus comes up to him, and he says, well, wait, it, it's not... It's not you that need to be baptized, it's me. I'm the lesser one, is what John the Baptist is saying here. And I am a sinner, and you're not, Jesus. So what's going on with baptism? Let's dig in a little bit deeper. The word here is baptisma. It's a noun from a verb, baptizo. And we read, actually, in some scholastic work that the clearest example shows that the meaning of baptizo is in a text from a Greek poet and physician named Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C. You know what the word is referred to initially as? Baptizo? It's a very sacred, sacrosanct, religious ceremony. No, it's not. It refers to pickles. Pickles, putting a cucumber in the pickle juice so that it becomes pickled with the brine, completely absorbed. There's actually two words, interestingly. There's bapto, which just means to dip, and there's baptizo, which means to dip, immerse, and keep under. Makes sense, right? If you just take a cucumber and dip it in a bucket of brine and bring it out and take a bite out of it, you're not going to have a pickle. You're going to have a cucumber with a little bit of dill on top of it, right? But it's so much different when you take that cucumber and you stick it in the brine and you let it sit there, right? And, of course, you don't take it out. We don't take it out until we take it home in a jar from the store, right? But the ancients, of course, would have barreled theirs. So that's the idea of baptizo, the idea that that it becomes infused with something. Not a temporary change, a permanent change. Baptism, though, was also something that the Jews did. It was part of their Old Testament law. They were to be ceremonially clean, right? So those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, think back with me to Leviticus and Numbers. Leviticus 13 through 17 talks about this ceremonial cleansing. Goes into great detail, in fact, spending those chapters talking about what to do in circumstances such as someone having a skin disease or having a mold infestation or bodily discharges or 
a scapegoat and atonement. All of those are part of this idea that we must be clean because we've come into contact with something ceremonially dirty. Numbers 19, perhaps, is most interesting. It talks about someone coming into contact with death. So in Numbers 19, 9, we read, A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonial clean place outside of the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. So that's interesting right there. But how do you make holy water in the Old Testament? You use the ashes of a sacrifice. You continue on in, in uh, Numbers 19. It is for the purification from sin. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Their uncleanness remains on them. So here we have in the Old Testament law this image of uncleanness linked with death, linked with sin. You see what God's doing in his plan, telling this story. And you have a way for God's people to become clean by use of a sacrifice whose ashes are put into water, which then cleanses the water, which is then sprinkled on the people to make them clean because they've been in contact with sin and death. These are examples of what the author of Hebrews is talking about, these foreshadowings of new things to come. This idea permeates the Jews. The Hebrew law is kept up, and in fact we read in King David's Psalm 51 where David is lamenting his sin. He pleads in verse 7 of Psalm 51, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean, O Lord. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You see, this idea persists in the Hebrew mindset and persists all the way to John the Baptist and to Jesus. So baptism became part of the ceremony for the Jews, but it also was part of a ceremony for the Gentiles, if you became a Jew, part of your initiation was through baptism. The other part was circumcised, circumcision. If you were a man, you were circumcised to become a Jew, and then you were baptized. And we see evidence of this again in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5, where the Syrian general Naaman comes, and he has leprosy. And he's told to go dip himself in the Jordan River. Another prefigurement of baptism. So John the Baptist takes that imagery, that thing that's in the Hebrew mindset, and he emphasizes the idea of repentance and forgiveness. Why? Because it had become an empty ceremony. It becomes something that the Pharisees earlier in this chapter think they can do, and so he calls them a brood of vipers because they don't understand what's going on with, with his baptism. The rest of Jesus' response, therefore, or, Jesus's, or John's objection, rather, to Jesus being baptized makes perfect sense 
in that context, right? Jesus doesn't need any of this ceremonial cleansing. But Jesus' answer to him is even more intriguing. Jesus says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And it's interesting that he says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' response is key. Let it be so, or permit it. Permit it. Scholar R.C. Lenski, a Lutheran scholar, says, whereas John said, I have need, Jesus only says, it is proper regarding baptism. You see the difference. John the Baptist, like all people born other than Jesus, is a sinner and in need. Jesus is sinless and not in need, but says, it is proper. Permit it. Let us do this fitting thing. What is this? Why does Jesus do this? Scholars have asked that for many years. But here's some of their answers. This is Jesus' complete submission to God's will is part of it. God commissions John to go before the Lord, to prepare the way of the Lord, right? We read that back in Advent in Luke 1.17, that John's to go He's commissioned, he's given a message to take to the people, to prepare the way for Jesus. And here he is fulfilling it. But Jesus also is given a commission, right? He's given a message too. His commission and his message is to redeem the world. To redeem the world, which we heard not only at Christmas Eve, but the, Christ, the Sunday after Christmas in John chapter 1. So John the Baptist's commission is to preach repentance and Jesus is, is to redeem the world. And so Jesus says, let us do this to fulfill all righteousness. It's Christ being obedient. But John's baptism is not the completion of baptism. And here's where I really want you to pay attention. Because John's baptism is not Christian baptism. It's only half of it. John's baptism dealing with repentance and forgiveness is only about the washing and the repentance. And washing is good, right? If I'm dirty and I wash, the dirt is gone. But what happens? I go out and I work in the yard, I cut some wood, I dig in the garden, and do I stay clean? No. I get dirty again. Just like our confession. Our confession is because we know that we commit sins and have to come back before the altar, right? We're dirty again. And so if baptism was only about repentance and forgiveness, it would really be a depressing thing. It's about much more than that. But some Christians view baptism that way. And in my opinion... When we do that, we rob ourselves of half of its power. Because while salvation begins with repentance and forgiveness, it doesn't end there. That's why, as Anglicans, who are historically Reformed Protestants and Catholics, both Christians, for us, baptism is not something that we do in response to a decision that's made, but it's something that God offers even prior to our choosing him. 
because it's more than just a sign accompanying repentance. It's much more. In belief and practice, we sit in great contrast, for example, with American evangelicalism, who says that baptism is almost an afterthought, maybe after you say the sinner's prayer. And when I've spoken to some of you about this, who come from that tradition, you've told me how many times you've said the sinner's prayer again and again and again. Why? You recommit yourself to Christ. Well, what happens? You go and you get dirty again, right? If baptism is only that, then you should be baptized probably every day. And yet, Scripture says there's one baptism. There's one baptism. Baptism, if properly done in the name of the Trinity, can never be repeated. It's only done once because it's much more than a sign. Baptism is also a sacrament. It's a gift from God. In the 39 Articles of Religion, which is our Anglican um, statement of faith on this, we read that baptism is not only a sign of profession and a mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, that is baptized, but is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument that they receive baptism rightly, are grafted into the church the promises of the forgiveness of sins and our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. What's that saying? That's, you know, 16th century theological speak. But what is it saying? That it's more than just a sign that accompanies profession of faith. It's also an instrument by which people become regenerate. What's that mean? It means that they become alive, right? To regenerate. Just like to generate power. To be vivified. To be enlivened. That's part of what baptism is. And how does that happen? With the Holy Spirit. And where the heck is the Anglican Church? Not just the Anglican Church. The church for thousands of years pulling this from. This very passage here today in Matthew. Because look at what Jesus does. If it was just about repentance and faith, Jesus would have no need for baptism. But rather, Jesus goes down in the water and comes up. And what do we see? We're just where we started, the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. And when Jesus was baptized, this is verse 16, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And here's the thing that should blow your mind. This second half of baptism that Jesus does is not just Jesus' baptism, it's our baptism too. Jesus completes this sign and makes it the sacrament that it is today. That it's not just repentance and forgiveness, not just a sign accompanying faith, but it is literally God sending His Holy Spirit into you, which is why you can never be rebaptized. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. It's not dependent upon you. God puts Him in you. 
And so you're either regenerate or you're not. Now, we can have the discussion as to whether you're faithful or not. That's another discussion, right? But baptism is about this regeneration of the person, the whole person. So why is Jesus baptized in short? But you might not think there's anything in this sermon that's short. But Jesus is doing this to transform baptism for us. That's what it means to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus adds this part to baptism for us so that we can be sons just as he's a son, so that we can have the Holy Spirit and be with God just as he is the second person with God in communion with God. Not that we become gods, you don't misunderstand me, but, but that we become in communion with God just as Jesus is in communion with God. Jesus' baptism completes baptism itself. It fulfills the Old Testament baptism itself. It brings that second half to it. In fact, he makes it a sacrament of entry into the kingdom of God and a sacrament of transformation, regeneration. But there's more, believe it or not. For while everyone who receives John baptism by water is washed, when Jesus is baptized, Jesus actually starts his redemption of the world. He's com completing, or he's fulfilling his mission. Now, hang with me, because this last point gets into why we have holy water. What is holy water? It's water that God has touched. Why is baptism water special? Because it's water that Jesus has touched. In the sacrament of baptism, Jesus takes a part of fallen creation. A part of creation that fell in Genesis 3 with us. And he restores it. He chooses water to restore life. He chooses bread and wine to give sustenance. Because Jesus knows that we as human beings need physical things. We're not this mind that just floats around, but we need these reminders. We need part of creation to assist us with his grace, you see. Maximus of Turin, a bishop writing in 380, puts it this way. He says, Christ was baptized not only to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Christ was baptized not to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy. You see, Jesus touches the water and makes it holy so that we can be holy. And so when we renew our baptismal vows, as we're about to do, or when we take holy water from this place to sprinkle our homes or to perhaps use once in a while as we pray, we're reminding ourselves of our baptism. But we're also using this to let God touch us and transform us. For baptism is once and permanent, but you and I need reminders of that permanence. And so, as part of the kingdom of God, 
this is an agent, just as bread and wine are agents of holiness for us to, to help us live, to equip us on our journey, to make us agents of redemption. And you know what? Even as Anglicans, even as those that believe in the sacramental stuff, I sometimes forget this. Sometimes I think of my baptism only as repentance. And that's a tragedy because it means I'm stuck in my sin. It means that while God might forgive me, I'm not moving ahead in my spiritual walk. Friends, embrace the second half of your baptism and what it means. That you are equipped, you are signed, you are sealed to move ahead as the Holy Spirit transforms you. Not to stand in place. And to share that good news with everyone around you. Because if that's true, it changes everything. It changes all relationships. It changes every material thing that you touch as an agent of redemption. Do we think about it that way? Let's think about it that way. Let's think about the interactions we have with people who are more important than things. To spread the light of Christ, to be messengers, to be redeemed messengers who fulfill His commission. Amen.